If you would please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We will be closing out our series this morning looking at verses 13 through 22 of this final chapter of the book of Ruth. It can be found in the Pew Bible, I believe on page 224 as well as in the bulletin. Ruth chapter 4 starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go to the Lord and ask his help as we come to his word. O Father, you indeed are sovereign. As we come to the close of this book, we we see your sovereign hand, not just working in the life of this particular family at this particular moment in time, but seeing your sovereign hand be at work from the beginning of time to bring about your perfect plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. May you open our eyes to see it afresh this morning here in Ruth chapter 4. May my words be true by the power of your spirit. May your words be applied to your people by that same spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Can you think of a time or a situa- when a situation turned out for you better than you had expected? Or greater still, maybe a time when a bad situation not only turned out well, but turned out beyond anything you could have imagined? Let me offer you a very, very trivial example from my favorite baseball team, the Philadelphia Phillies. Last season, at the beginning of June, about this time, the Phillies were awful. The playoffs were a pipe dream. The stadium was relatively empty, and it's a beautiful stadium. And the team seemed destined for yet one more losing season. And as a testament to their awfulness, to their hopeless state, they fired their manager on June 3rd. And immediately after him being fired, the team went on to win 14 of their next 17 games, fought their way into the playoffs, made the World Series, sorry Braves fans, first time they did so since 2009, and they eventually did lose in the World Series in six games. And while winning, would the whole thing would have been the ideal situation, the entire season still ended as a memorable one. If you had asked me last June or told me that the Phillies were going to not only make the playoffs but at the World Series, I would have laughed at you. If you also would have told me my two daughters would become Phillies fans, I also would have laughed at you, and that's probably the best win of all. My girls now ask me about Phillies, the scores, what's going on with them. They're not doing so well already. But the season proved to be one that far exceeded not only expectations, but even the wildest of imaginations. And as we come now here to the end of the book of Ruth, a similar yet far more wonderful and meaningful turn of events takes place. 
Naomi, that formerly bitter widow, is restored to pleasance once again through the sacrificial redemption of Ruth by Boaz, which we looked at last week. And the truth is, maybe this part was expected, especially as the story moves along and creeps closer and closer to an end. There are certainly more than enough hints that this might end up turning out pretty well for Naomi and her family. But no one could have expected the ultimate surprise that comes at the end. Where we find that God was working not only to redeem and restore this particular family. But no, he was going to use this work of redemption in this particular family to bring about a more glorious redemption down the road. And so here at the end of Ruth, we are invited, along with the women that we see here before Naomi, to praise the Lord whose sovereign work to redeem and restore far surpasses the hopes of his people. Praise the Lord whose sovereign work to redeem and restore far surpasses the hope of his people. You'll find the points for you this morning on page 7. We're going to look at the faithfulness of the Lord, the filling of Naomi, and finally, the foundation of the king. Together, these reveal to us the providence of the Lord to bring about his good purposes. And the hope is not simply that they will inform us, but they will actually encourage us, renew us to hopeful rejoicing in our God's sovereign and good work. First up, we start with the faithfulness of the Lord. We see it just in those first two verses. The Lord ends up doing exactly what Boaz prayed he would do for Ruth when they first met in the fields. If you don't remember, this is what he tells Ruth when they first meet. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In covenant faithfulness, the Lord re rewards Ruth for her covenant faithfulness. That she has demonstrated again and again and again throughout this story. And what is her reward? What is the faithfulness of the Lord that she receives? First we see the Lord restores Ruth. It starts by just saying, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Unlike the description you'll remember from chapter 1 of Ruth's first marriage... That was a little bit sketchy, a little bit unusual. This description follows the biblical pattern to a T. Ruth is now a wife. Boaz takes her. Boaz clings to her. Boaz delights in her as his wife. And this completes her progression that we've seen in the story. She's no longer the foreigner that she's herself confessed back in chapter 2. She's no longer the lowest of servants that she also said in chapter 2. She's no longer the maidservant that she uses when she proposed to him on the threshing floor. For all you writers and fans of good stories, Ruth's character arc is completed now when she becomes a wife. She's restored. Boaz is the provision of rest for Ruth which Naomi had hoped for her daughter at the very beginning. Ruth is now safe and secure 
And greater still, Ruth has discovered the truthfulness of the words of God being faithful to do what a psalmist would later write in Psalm 113, verse 7. The Lord raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. In the home of Boaz, Ruth is no longer poor. She is no longer needy. She is home. She is restored. But we also see part of her restoration is the Lord also provides her with a child. It says, and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now you and I might read this and think, yep, that makes sense. Then comes marriage. Then comes the baby in the baby carriage. And it sounds certainly familiar with every biblical story of how families are grown. But the phrase that is used there, the Lord gave her conception, is unique. For one, it's unique to this story. Because there's only been one other time where the author has explicitly used the Lord as a subject of a verb. Saying that the Lord is explicitly doing something. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 6, when it said the Lord visited his people, brought them food. Every other time, the Lord has been at work either behind the scenes or in the speeches of the characters in the story. And when we take these two uses of the Lord being the subject of the verb, we see that both of them are tied explicitly to redemption. In the first case, the Lord is redeeming from a famine of the land. And now here in the second case, the Lord is redeeming from a famine of the womb. And this sheds light on the other uniqueness of this phrase. Because normally biblical announcements of birth are just matter of fact. And she conceived. But here the emphasis is this child is a gift from the Lord. It is a miracle. And when we think about it, Ruth was married to Malin for about 10 years. And had no children to show for it. It is safe to say Ruth was a barren woman. And so this child that has been provided for her. Was a miracle. Was a demonstration of the Lord's faithfulness. Again it points forward to Psalm 113. This time verse 9 where it says. The Lord gives the barren woman a home. Making her the joyous mother of children. A full restoration, a miracle child. These were demonstrations of the Lord's covenant faithfulness to Ruth. They were his good and faithful gifts to her. For her good and faithfulness to her mother-in-law. Then moving it one step forward, we also see the Lord's faithfulness in general to provide a redeemer. The women of the town profess, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And if you notice from this point in the story, Ruth and Boaz kind of retreat to the, to the backstage. And Naomi gets put forth front and center once again. And our next point is going to focus more on the perspective of Naomi. But for this first point, it is sufficient to simply emphasize the Lord's faithfulness to provide his people with a redeemer. Even when it seemed like he had abandoned Naomi and her family, the Lord was at work. Even when it felt like all hope was at loss, the Lord was at work. 
even when it seemed like redemption was impossible, the Lord was at work. His faithfulness to his people had not suddenly stopped. It may have been realized this day, the day the baby was born, but it was hard at work and fully on display long before this day had arrived. Brothers and sisters, we need to be encouraged this same faithfulness of the Lord has not left you or me either. We have all the reason to boldly sing along with these women, Blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a Redeemer. No, you may not be presently where Ruth is, holding some very tangible expressions of God's faithfulness in your hand. You may still, in fact, be in a place of emptiness, of sorrow, or even darkness. But rest assured, the faithfulness of God is still there with you. New for you every morning. It has not left you. It will not leave you. And neither will your Redeemer. Trust in his faithfulness. Look for his faithfulness. Then rejoice, even learn to rejoice in his faithfulness wherever and whenever you see it. For more on Naomi, then, we move to our second point. From the faithfulness of the Lord to the filling of Naomi. And in some ways, this is really just a sub-point of the faithfulness of the Lord. But this idea of Naomi being filled traces back to her own words when she first returned from Moab, where she told these very same women, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And again, no one can blame her for feeling this way. I would say that losing your husband and your two sons falls in the category of being empty. She had hit rock bottom. She had nothing. And her future, as we looked at, has promised her even less. But what she learns at the end of this story is that her emptiness was not going to last. It would not have the final say. The very God who had made her life so bitter would be the very same God who would make it so unimaginably pleasant. I like what Dr. Mark Talbot, a professor at Wheaton College, who himself is a man who knows a lot of suffering, writes in his book, very helpful book, When the Stars Disappear. He says, Ruth's final chapter reveals that Naomi's hopelessness in the midst of her suffering was no measure of God's ability to work out everything for her good. God demonstrates how he is able to not merely fill, but fill to the brim. And so what good do we discover for Naomi? How is she filled here in these verses? First, we see she is filled with hope where there once was nothing but despair. The women prophesy about this child. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now, a note of caution here for all parents and grandparents. I would highly encourage you not to put these words into birthday cards and graduation cards. Don't sneak them in. These are rather lofty ambitions you would have for your child or grandchild. It might crush them. And it might actually be a little bit risky for you as well. But back then, this wouldn't be the case. 
the birth of this child alone, before he had done anything, the fact that he had arrived was reason enough for Naomi's future to be totally transformed. To be given hope. To be given revival and restoration. This little baby would one day redeem and restore Naomi's old age. Remember, her old age had once been a sign of her doom and gloom. Her burden. Her unbeatable obstacle. But not so much now with the birth of this child. Even at this extremely young age, this child is a guarantee that Naomi's future is secure and filled with hope. He is that bright ray of sunshine, not simply peeking through the clouds, but driving all the clouds away. He guarantees her well-being in the years ahead. He guarantees that she will find similar rest and security, just like Ruth has found it in Boaz. Of her even finding revival in her old age. But greater still than that, Naomi is also not only filled with hope where there once was despair, she is filled with a daughter where there once was only sons. And if this makes you pause, it's supposed to. When the women say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, it is a truly provocative statement. It could be translated as, you lost two sons, but you gained a daughter-in-law. And even in that day, relationships between mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws were not always the best. But the truth is, as we have seen, Ruth is no ordinary daughter-in-law. Hopefully that point has been abundantly clear as we've walked our way through this story. Ruth is steadfast. Ruth is hardworking. Ruth is honorable. She has been a tremendous blessing over and over again for Naomi. And so while seven sons may be the gold standard for an Israelite family, Ruth has proven herself worthy of the status of better than seven sons. Again, I point you to Proverbs 31. Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman in the flesh. But even more than that, she is quite arguably the greatest Old Testament display of Israel's ethic. You'll remember what that is because Jesus summarized it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Ruth demonstrated to her mother-in-law. And this is what made her so special, so valuable to Naomi. Why the women praise her. That you have a daughter-in-law who loves you like the Lord loves you. Yes, she's produced this miraculous redeemer child. Yes, she's a woman of incredible character. But even more so, she has demonstrated for you the covenant love of the Lord your God. In a tangible way. This very same woman who Naomi had basically ignored when she came into town. Who she had included in her emptiness has now filled Naomi with far more than seven sons could possibly have wished to fill their mother with. And then we also see that Naomi is filled with joy where there was none. We see in verse 16 that Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. Now there is debate about what is going on here. 
Is this some kind of official adoption rights? Is the child now Naomi's? Did Naomi suddenly become a foster mother for Obed? I don't think such debates are all that convincing or really all that important. I would agree with one commentator when he says the emphasis is really this. The loving natural actions of a grandmother gratefully accepting her new status and tenderly receiving the baby. Joy. I've had three babies. And besides Bethany and myself, the grandmothers were always, always, always the most excited to see, to hold, to snuggle, to do whatever with the babies. And every time they did hold that baby for the first time, without fail, smiles and tears were abundant. Tears of joy. And so one time for each baby, one time for each grandmother, that's six times. Six times of this kind of joy being demonstrated. And this is what we see at the most basic level of what's taking place when that child is put in the lap of Naomi. There is joy, there is gladness, there's smile, there's tears. Probably even some laughter from the woman who was once bitter. But even more so, it's where the baby's placed. The baby's placed on her lap, literally in her bosom, in her arms. Arms that for the longest of time were void of sons, void of a husband. They're now both literally and figuratively filled with joy as this child is sitting in her lap and maybe sleeping, maybe even screaming. So the application for this point is easy. Grandmothers, love your children and enjoy them to the fullest. And while that's certainly good and true, and I would encourage you to do that, it is really for all of us to wait and to hope in the Lord's promise to fill us by his grace. Look for him when your hope is wavering. Find your joy in him when the circumstances of your life, even those caused by your own folly, threaten to steal your joy. Rest in his love for you even when all you may know presently is nothing but pain and loss. And then know the taste and the glimpses of his fullness in the blessings that he is pouring out on you day after day, as small as they may seem. As Naomi would find out, his ability to fill his people is far beyond what we can fathom. And then learn to pray what Paul would pray at the end of Ephesians 3. That God would indeed fill us. No, not with stuff. Not necessarily even with tangible blessings, but with himself. Where he prays that the church, that you being rooted and grounded in love, would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Know his fullness for you in Christ. Ask for him to fill it in you and through you afresh day after day. Finally then, this brings us to our third and final point, the foundation of the king. We find here at the end that the birth of Obed proves to have far greater significance, not just for this family, but for the entire family of God, for all of God's people over all time. And this is the greatest twist or the most shocking surprise of the entire story. 
I know there are some here who don't like surprise endings. This is one of those good surprise endings. It is that pleasant surprise revealed at the end of the story where as you read it, you can't help but smile. Where we find that God has not only been working behind the scenes to bring Ruth and Boaz together or to restore and redeem Naomi, his purposes are far better, far greater than just that. Ian Duguid puts the ending this way. What looked like a simple story of personal emptiness filled and personal needs met turns out to be God's way of meeting a far greater need. For God used all of these events to bring about his own goals that were so much bigger than any of the characters involved in the story could possibly have imagined. Now I am sure Obed was a wonderful child. Clearly he brought great joy and delight to his grandmother. But the truth is, Obed is only the beginning. His renown is not going to rest in what he does, but it's going to rest in where the story goes from here. And where it's going is somewhere really, really big. We read it at the end of verse 17. It's almost kind of thrown in as an aftermath. But don't let the way it's thrown in miss the significance. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In God's perfect wisdom and providence, the story has been his means of preserving not just this family line, but the royal family line. He was working to ensure that kingship in Israel would come to fruition. And consider the reality of the context in which this work is being done. We looked at it way back in the beginning, in Ruth chapter 1. Where the book opens in the days when the judges ruled. And connect that with the end of Judges. Where it says in this day, in those days there was no king in Israel. The kingship is not even on the people's radar. It's not even on their wish list. No one thinks they need one. No one is asking for one. Everyone is instead living as if they were their own kings of their own kingdoms. And yet, even in the midst of this very dark and tumultuous period, quite possibly the worst period in Israel's history, a period marked by chaos, suffering, and sorrow, much like Naomi's history, the Lord is sovereignly laying the groundwork for the king. A king who would be categorized as one after his own heart. The king that they needed, even when they had no idea that they needed it. The king that they would receive when they weren't even asking for it. God was working through the sorrow, through the darkness, even through the sin and rebellion to bring this perfect king about. And positively, he was also working through the seemingly mundane acts of obedience and covenant faithfulness that we've seen in Boaz and Ruth. Then we also see that the foundation was laid even further back than just here with Obed. We don't know whether the writer wrote this genealogy at the time of this writing or someone came and added it in later. But it gets tagged on a fuller genealogy at the end. And while it doesn't start at the very beginning, it does go back pretty far to Judah's son. Where it starts with the generations of Perez and then works its way to Obed, Jesse, Jesse to David. And this genealogy has ten people in it likely abbreviated, but 10 people 
mirrors two other genealogies of ten people in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Those two emphasize very significant events in God's redemptive history. Genesis 5 was Adam to Noah. Genesis 11 was Noah to Abraham. And here we have a third genealogy of ten names from Perez to David to signal the future of Israel's greatest earthly king. He would be the one who would answer the woman's prophecy of a, of a king, of a son of Obed, renowned in Israel. But of course, as we know, David would not be the ultimate or final answer. His name, while certainly would be great, would not be the most renowned in Israel, or let alone all of creation. Earlier this week, I jokingly apologized to whichever one of the elders was up to read this morning, because Matthew 1 is just a list of names, some of them in varying degrees of difficulty. Thankfully, Dr. Bob said, oh, I love reading names, just one more sign of God's providence. But the point, as, as Bob drew out before he read, was not merely to read off a bunch of names for you. It was to show how the foundations of this, what we see here in Ruth, the kingdom, the king being paved, started from the very beginning and kept building, not to David, but through David to eventually get to David's greater son, Jesus Christ. He is the one that this story is ultimately directing our gaze toward. It is he, not David, not Obed, not Jesse, who is the true restorer of life, nourisher of any age. He is the one who loves with a perfect covenantal love that we saw demonstrated on the cross when he took our sin upon himself. And he is the one worth more than seven sons, any inheritance or any heritage that we could establish for ourselves or leave for our children. Jesus Christ is the redeemer and king that God promised to provide for his people way back in the garden and yet again once more here at the end of this seemingly weird and significant story of Ruth. Jesus is the culmination of what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, where he talks about the mystery of God's salvation. And he quotes what is likely Isaiah 64, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart man, of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What God has prepared is Jesus Christ as, his, as their redeemer, the redeemer of his people, the king that they need, even if we're not aware that we need him, the king that we're going to receive, even if we don't ask for him. Jesus Christ is the far-surpassing reality of all the hopes and dreams of God's people. He is the faithfulness of God. He is the fullness of God. He is the foundation of his people. And so as we close both this message and this series, there's really just two things that I want to emphasize or leave us with. And I've already mentioned them earlier in this sermon. The first is to trust. Trust in the Lord and his sovereign work in your life as well as all of life. Trust in his sovereign work even in times of sorrow, deep sorrow, grief and pain. Even in times of great confusion and darkness. He is doing what we sang just before the sermon. His love is pursuing its purpose, our soul's eternal good. 
Trust in your kind and gracious King and Redeemer. Trust that He will give you rest, that He will and that He is restoring you even right now. That He has not left you, that He will not leave you. And trust also, as Ruth and Boaz would find out, that there is great reward in faithfully following and submitting to him. There is joy even beyond what you could possibly think imaginable. And the second then is to worship. Learn to sing with the women of Bethlehem. Blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a redeemer. Glory in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. Where sinners like you and me are redeemed and restored today and also given the great hope that we will be fully redeemed and fully restored in the presence of our gracious and kind Savior and King. Declare the praises of our triune God who by his providence perfectly ordained, accomplished, and is applying Christ's redemption to his people. And rejoice in that day that is awaiting all of God's people. When our faith will be truly turned to sight. Where we will be standing in the presence of our redeeming and restoring God. Fully and finally redeemed and restored. And on that day you will find that it far exceeds your greatest expectation. Your wildest imagination. Because that is the work that God has promised to do. That is the work that God is currently doing. And that is the work he promises to bring to completion. Would you praise the Lord for his work to redeem and restore. A work that far surpasses surpasses all the hopes of his people. Let us pray. Blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a redeemer. Our God, we give you thanks. You have so graciously and sovereignly provided Jesus, our Redeemer, our King. Even when we least expected, even when your people were running in rebellion against you, you were working to bring about your perfect plan of redemption. We give you praise. We ask that you would help us to trust, to trust in your sovereign work that you are doing now, even when it's hard even when the days are dark. Help us to trust in your gracious provision and then help us to worship. To worship especially when the days are darkest. To lift our eyes up and to see we do have a help from on high. And to look forward to that day when we will be fully redeemed and restored in your sight for all eternity. Give us a fresh glimpse of that day. Give us a fresh renewal of your hope, we ask by your spirit.